Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You have to be fiscally responsible for the long term, not the short term. And we haven't really done that because of this instant gratification society. We want results yesterday. Is President Trump going to be the best messenger to the American people of, we're going to do some things painfully now to have some better returns in the future? Dow 20,000, President Donald Trump, a tightening Federal Reserve. And then what? We ask a pair of huge market machers. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's, now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from NPR's New York City headquarters, right opposite Bryant Park, are my esteemed guests for this episode, Tobias Lefkovich, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Citigroup, and Lauren Young, Money Editor at Reuters. How are you two? Doing great. I'm so happy to be with you, Robin. It just makes me gives me chills up my spine. Listeners of this show uh, should realize, in the interest of full disclosure, that I've been working with Lauren Young forever. She's been like an investing big sister to me when I was at Smart Money Magazine 15 years ago, was it? I sat next to her. We were at Business Week together. She's always been like a mentor and a sounding board. She just came back from Davos. Her first appearance at that esteemed rarefied event where she was such a big deal that she caused an avalanche and major meltage. Yeah. Alternative facts, but we'll take them. Works in today's world. (laughs) (laughs) And Tobias, we all all go back a long way. It's such an honor to finally have you on the show, good sir. I read your notes. I've been a reader of your notes for a good 15 years, and I want to get your pulse on this Trump rally. You put out a note on Washington Watch. Very interesting, plus post-inauguration thoughts. What is the market romancing? We just broke Dow 20,000. There's a lot of uh, hope for uh, some sort of fiscal stimulus after the Fed has been easing for what, the better part of a decade, uh, the Fed has kept easy. Where is this headed? So let, let's step back just a little bit and say I, I'm not convinced this is, quote, unquote, the Trump rally or the Trump trade. I do think there has been some underlying improvement in economic conditions um, that have kind of coincided more with the election than anything else. Now, clearly, um, there is a perspective that a Trump presidency is going to bring along with it kind of a more pro-business perspective and things like that. I'm, I'm not denying that. But 
Earnings started to kind of inflect around the third quarter, got better, and, and we haven't seen the results fully yet, but likely to be better in the fourth quarter, only simply because you have energy prices higher year over year, and that's going to pull probably the area that's been most hurt um, in earnings over the past couple of years. And, and just to give you context, there's been discussion around an earnings recession in the U.S. over the past two years. Actually, if you took out energy and again, you can't just take out the bad stuff, but for, for purposes of understanding it, if you took out the energy sector in the last eight quarters, there's only been one quarter where earnings were actually down. And that was in the first quarter of last year of 2016, where uh, earnings fell a whopping 1.5%. I'd kind of call that pretty flat. Um, Energy's been the biggest problem, and that's kind of starting to swing the other way. Uh, and the first half will have easy comps going into 2017 as well. Now, having said that, Earnings are turning, markets are turning with the earnings, and there's a prospect for better earnings going forward, again, even before uh, the Trump uh, conditions are put in place. And just, just think of in these terms that when President Obama took over from President Bush, he inherited a, a, an economy that was crashing. Um, as Trump takes over from Obama, you're seeing actually better data even prior to him coming in um, and, and winning the election. So... You've got to carry on in this respect where small business optimism has looked really, really powerful for the first time in 12 years as they say, hey, regulation, taxation are going to come down. But if we just even took the data that's been out very recently, industrial production came out, ISM came out showing improving trends. The ISM new orders level of 60 is a pretty good indicator for the next several months of industrial production going higher, and that supports earnings growth. And then we could park everything else along on the side. Now, you, you, wait, wait, wait. You just cited the ISM. And let me tell you, and, and Lauren realizes, Tobias, for the, the longest time I've been quoting my own metric, the ICRI, the Iranian Contrarian Relative Index, that if I ever get one of my relatives calling from Terangelis and saying, Fazad, you should buy Cisco, it is my fiduciary and journalistic obligation to write something or to get out on my show and say, short Cisco or get the hell out of something. Now, Lauren, this is for you. The ICRI has been moribund now since the year 2000, almost 17 years. I have not, at, at cocktail parties, at the many events that I go to, uh, in traveling and in interactions with friends and relatives, I hear nothing about the market, nothing about Dow 20,000, nothing about, um, you know, animal spirits, nothing like what we experienced, I say, when Dow broke 10,000. And it's interesting because I remember, you know, back in our fun smart money days, everybody talked about tech stocks. They talked about Qualcomm. Was Remember the one year when Qualcomm was up like thousand percent or something nuts like that. Um, I actually have a question for Tobias, because if earnings are as good as they seem, is that because, and this is weighs a little bit, but it's not a political question per se, but is that because the American economy is good or is it because the global economy is good? Mostly the American economy. I mean, Europe's better, uh, to be fair. Um, China's growing. It's just not growing as fast as it was before. Emerging markets in general are growing, but at a slower pace. Um, there, there are certainly big trouble spots in the world if we're going to talk about Venezuela. Um, and I don't have a Polish metric or a Canadian metric to kind of um, cover my, my Full background. Full disclosure, Tobias is Canadian, ladies But of Polish descent. So, And just, by the way, the Canadian flag is red and white, as is the Polish one, which is just very interesting, bizarre factoid. Um, but, but I would sit there and say that the, you know, because I actually didn't vote, I don't have the right to vote in this country as a Canadian, um, I always tell people to park your political partisanship when you're talking about investing. So, you know, I know Robin, Robin's going to love this because he always loves when I talk about our panic euphoria model. Um, 
And it's neutral. Robin calls it the flex capacitator. Just for everybody. Wait, guys, step back from the jargon for a minute. Tobias Afkovich walks around. He pounds the pavement with this this little flipboard, this this pitch book of the most esoteric metrics, panic, euphoria, uh, you know, P.E. ratio versus enterprise to uh, blue horseshoe loves Teldar paper, any any kind of permutation you can imagine um, and, and, and dishes these out. And you kind of step back and you... Uh, you know, you order dessert and you say, so, Tobias, well, translate this for me. Um, and so that's sure. what I kind of love and I can't stand about you at the same time, that you can you can talk both ways. <laughs> so, okay, my wife has a similar love-hate relationship with me. But um, if you think about, not because of my chart book, but the chart that we're talking about, the panicky forward model, was we, we back-tested about 70 different sentiment metrics to kind of get a feel for which have been the most important indicators for future market performance. Um, and then... We found about 20 that had relationships, and then we started blending and putting recipes together of different uh, ingredients to kind of see which ones on a combined basis had the most predictive value. And the idea here is that no single indicator will tell you what what's going on because we have multi, we have a kind of multifaceted world uh, with multiple influences that, that coincide. So – there are nine factors in our model. They're equally weighted. And basically, it doesn't tell us if people are thrilled or if they're depressed. It tells us what markets are likely to do. And I, I, was, I, I say this unashamedly, uh, that I am a capitalist through and through. And I'm looking to make money in markets. Otherwise, it's just an interesting hobby. So the model was designed when we were in panic territory, and it's a statistical, uh, you know, without getting too complicated, confidence interval. When you are in, in panic, there's a 97% probability you will make money in the next 12 months. We were there a year ago at this time when everybody was terrified of a recession. When you're in euphoria, you have a 70% chance of losing money. Mm. Um, and keep in mind, if you buy stock, 73% of the time the market is up 12 months later if you go back 40, 50 years. So we're looking at what are the higher probabilities of wins, and if you like, and what are the high probabilities of losses. And right now, we're kind of in neutral territory. So we've given up the bearishness. Um, but it's not like people are euphoric about the Trump presidency and saying, oh, great, this is going to be the most wonderful thing ever. So in the rubric of a, a changing president and a changing political landscape, how do you factor in the, I, I hate to say uncertainty, but it really is uncertainty because nobody knows what's going to happen with the Federal Reserve or, you know, long term, what's going to happen with interest rates. They should go up, but we've been saying they were going to go up forever. But there's so many variables on trade and infrastructure spending. So how do you, I mean, I know people ask you to give these year end targets, which in, in some ways are, it's a little silly at this point. But can you talk a little bit about sure. how you do what you do? <laughs> Um, do look, what you, you do when you did what you did to me. You know, Lauren, you gave me an outlet for that. But go ahead, Tobias. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Uh, I, I can't compete on that. But um, yeah, so we look at various small. Again, we look at various influences. Where are we on valuation? Where are we on earnings trajectory? Where are we on the sentiment factors? Where are we on some of the unpredictable events that that you're referring to? And and um, we have a 24-25 target for the S&P 500 at year-end. If it's December 31st or January 2nd, I don't really care that much. But um, the context of where we are today, okay? So we put out a report a few weeks ago called The Bull Run. And this had to do, for those of you, I love when a Canadian is teaching American history, um, has to do with the Battle of Bull Run in 1861 where – 
the General McDowell led his troops into an ill-trained troop, I should I should say I should say in the north, going into the Battle of Bull Run to kind of punish the South for the attack on Fort Sumter, and it did not end the way the Union had hoped. Uh, the Union lost badly. Uh, for those of you who like history, that's where the term Stonewall for Stonewall, General Stonewall Jackson came from, and. It was fascinating in the sense that people were hoping for a quick end to the Civil War and it didn't transpire. And we said the quick end to the rally we've had since the election probably doesn't end either. Uh, and that was kind of where we took it from. But there are four really major pillars of this bull run continuing, if you like. Um, the first one is for the first time in a decade, we're, we're not talking about government intervention in the economy. Go back to the latter years of the Bush administration where they were trying to start to deal with the crisis that was developing in the housing sector, and in, in the banking sector, et cetera. Uh, and it continued through the Obama days. And all of a sudden, you have a new president with a totally different perspective, all about business, get government out of the way. Um, that's really important, by the way, to small business who claim the two things that they are most upset about in running their businesses is regulation and taxation. Now, keep in mind, small businesses, 80 to 85% of all new jobs. You want these people happy and going out there and hiring people and you know, increasing wages and making people's economic lives better. So that was the first big change that we haven't actually had for a while. Number two is a move from monetary policy to fiscal policy, a totally different push for economic activity. And the suppression we've had in bond yields and interest rates is probably going to diminish. And even, you know, the Fed chairwoman has told us that she intends to raise rates. Do you think she's going to – and again, I, you don't have any different crystal ball than anybody else. But is Janet Yellen in for a while or do you think he's going to – She gonna has be... said she is. <laughs> I, I'm She'll gonna take stay. Her, I'm going to take her at her word. Okay. He can't really push her out until 18 anyway. Um, number three is – this America first idea, and I, I'm not, I don't want to get down the trade war type discussion, but this idea that keep in mind 70% of S&P 500 revenues are pretty much domestic. So anything that drives economic activity in the U.S. Um, and generates earnings growth is good for markets domestically. Now, again, will we go to trade wars? I don't think so, but um, certainly that's a debatable point. And then the, the fourth issue is what I will call um, equities first, and I'll only give you some context for that. In Since 2005, so the 12 years, 05 through 16, if we looked at U.S.-oriented equity fund flows, so this is mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, and ETFs, $86.5 billion has left the equities world in terms of the outflows over a 12-year period. I, I would love to ask you guys, because I'm going to, I know the answer, so I feel superior. Um, what do you think the inflows were to bond funds over the same 12-year period? You, you thought you were asking me questions. Not $86 billion. North of like a trillion. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous inflow into bond funds. $1.735 trillion. Mm. So when people talk about great rotations, hey, I just want a mini reversal. I don't need big money flow. I have $4 trillion of, of corporate uh, stock purchases over the same time frame. So, you know, I think those will continue. Companies will still buy back stock. If they repatriate some of their overseas cash, they'll continue to do so. Um, but it's more about just some flow coming back. And by the way, you're starting to lose money in your bond funds for the first time in 35 years. Let me press you on that, Tobias, because we started pretty much every year almost for six or seven years with all these magazine stories, whether you read Fortune or Business Week, um, Kips, uh, Money Magazine. This is the year of the bond bear and people are finally going to get mauled and the bubble's going to burst and it doesn't happen. And then there becomes there's this crying wolf 
element to it where people have become inured to this idea that you cannot truly lose money in bonds. Because even if rates creep up, ultimately, say, international investors where negative yields are kind of all the rage, pile back into our debt, bail us out of the situation. Now, I want to step back from this because you've been around the street for quite some time. What happens when the Fed has to come in and ratchet up rates? A la 1994. I mean, that caused a bit of a, 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 a bit of a panic on Wall Street. You did see distress. You saw people with enormous drawdowns on their bond statements. And I wonder how that's going to be felt in an environment where, like you said, $1.7 trillion went into bond funds. There are about four questions embedded in there, uh, Robin. So I'm going to try to address a couple of them. And I, first of all, I don't see this rapid ascent in interest rates. It's kind of a you know a general trend, but keep in mind the last six months, if you own if you bought ten year treasury yields in the beginning of July of last year, you've already lost five years of coupon in the value of the bond. Mm. So not the greatest investment in the last six, seven months of your life. Um, but inflation expectations have been climbing if you look at ten at ten year break-even rates since February of last year. Not since the election which is the way most people say, oh, that's when the bond market turned. No, it turned in July. And again, inflation expectations turned in February. So um, it means you changed your portfolio positioning. You own cyclicals, you don't own defensives. I mean, that, that's what it really means. Uh, markets can go up in that environment. Now, but, but that's one piece. The second piece is when bond yields initially go up, something else happens, risk premiums come down. Because the reason bond yields are so depressed is the feeling that the economy can't grow. And everybody's fearful about, okay, we got all these problems. We need people to get jobs. Um, we have uh, large liabilities in terms of health care from the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. you know, how are we going to deal with this? Pensions aren't going to be able to pay out. All these kind of horrible fears. Um, as growth starts to get some sort of accelerant, then you start to see some of the bond yields go up. But at the same time, your risk premiums come down and the overall capital cost doesn't change in the nearer term. Over intermediate, longer-term perspectives, um, then, yeah, you're going to have someday in the future com multiple compression on the PE for the for the U.S. equity market. Um, in our work, you've got to get over 4% on inflation to kind of have that event occur. And at that point, yeah, the Fed will be racing hard to start you know, containing inflation because that's part of its mandate. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. It won't happen that rapidly. We, we're, you know, I think there's a um, – we haven't seen this in so long that people have this almost irrational fear that it's just going to come out out of the shadows. And, and that was the last piece I wanted to give you about the bull run. That um, just like General McDowell had ill-trained uh, forces going into battle, keep in mind, and you had 90-day conscription rates at that point. So you didn't have a lot of time to train your, your fighting force before they were called home. And that's why he didn't have a, a well-trained fighting force when he went up in, in the battle. And... I think in many respects, investors over the last, call it almost 20 years, have lived through bubbles bursting. If it was the tech bubble bursting, the housing bubble bursting, stock markets dropping 50% over a two-year time frame, um, you know, 9-11, wars, all this ter terrorism, all this terrible stuff that we almost expect that something's lurking in the shadows and it has to come out and attack us. Nobody remembers the 80s and 90s when they made money in stocks. They just don't. Um, so we have an ill-trained investment community as well facing this changing landscape, and that's upside opportunity. It isn't as devastatingly bad. Full disclosure, we are talking to Tobias Lefkovich, chief U.S. equity strategist at Citigroup. He is joined 
by Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters there at NPR New York City. Lauren Young, uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the institutional memory of all of this, both the 80s, the early 90s? I mean, the true, as you remember, Lauren, we've always talked about that covered death of equities, how inflation is destroying the stock market. That was a, a, a low point for Business Week in the early 80s and the late 70s. No one remembers Lauren was that. was in elementary school. Oh, I love during, it. My last name is Young, ladies and gentlemen. I'll always be young. Um, what is fascinating to me more than anything is that, you know, we've got the baby boomers who have been through a lot. And they I think they do remember some things depending on, you know, what they did in the 60s or what they didn't do in the 60s. But the millennial generation, the caution and the the conservative nature of millennials in terms of investing, even taking out credit cards, you know, they're like, they don't use credit cards. They want everything to be cash. And so here you work, you know, are they going to buy homes? Are they going to drive the economy? Because we know that home ownership is a key thing in terms of, of driving economic growth. The stage has not been set for them to be really bullish to buy us. So I, 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 I'm almost smart. I like I've Big smile on my he face. He does not have just, a big smile. Not just because I get to sit across from, from you, Lauren, but but more more because, and I'm not sitting across from Robin, keep in mind. <laughs> but thanks. Um, Tip your waiters. <laughs> uh, but but more a function of, I, I think people's perspective on millennials is heavily affected by the post crisis environment. Um, so, for instance, according to J.D. Powers, the single largest buyers of new cars today are millennials. According to the National Association of Realtors, the biggest buyers of new homes today in suburbia are millennials. The people who swore they would never live in suburbia. Suburbia is cool, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, they want to live in urban centers and shoebox apartments that they can't afford um, because it's cool. And you know what? I have millennial children. I also have now millennial children who have had grandchildren. And or have given me not they've had grandchildren they've given me grandchildren let me rephrase that, um, and it's funny when they were, you know, twenty two twenty three, and oh I want to live in the city I don't want to be able to get you know Chinese food at three in the morning, that's great now at three in the morning all you do want to sleep because the kids asleep and you don't want the garbage truck coming down the road waking up the kid or you, so I think the the mindset that people had five, six, seven years ago has actually already changed. Mm. Um, and there's data telling us that it has. And the millennial generation is big. The The age swath is big because we're talking about 18-year-olds to 34-year-olds. So the right. older millennials who, who are your kids, I assume. But I still think that, you know, I in the newsroom have all these young kids that I'm – I had one woman come up to me, Robin, and she asked me. She had gotten a $2,000 windfall. Was it okay for her to spend it on tickets to see the Broadway show Hamilton or buy a purse? And she was asking me for permission, and I said, girl, like, I gave her, you know, the compounded, the beauty of the power of compounding, and if you invested in your retirement account, the tens of thousands of dollars you'll have on that one investment. Um, so, And which one did she buy of the two? That's what I want to know. But the instant gratification aspect of our society is a, do- a totally different issue. Um, you know, we, we get frustrated when it takes about four seconds for a page to populate on our smartphones because we, we need to know when, where to go for dinner. Um, and we're actually frustrated that it took four seconds, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking beyond that. I think those are momentary issues. I, I think... 
for example, the time that people, the age group that people begin to save for their children's education and retirement is 35 to 39 if we look historically. And it lines up perfectly over time with when the stock market does better. So you say, well, they went through this horrible bear market. It'll, you know, they, they have no interest in this. By the way, they didn't even know it existed. Just like baby boomers didn't know what happened in the 70s when they started buying in the 80s. Tobias, talk to me about international. I know you and I, I mean, our conversations are very often S&P 500-centric. And to many, I mean, Jack Bogle of Vanguard included, that that's a sufficient proxy. You mentioned earlier that half of, of revenues are derived from abroad um, among the Standard & Poor's 500. But is there no, something— No, I didn't. I said, sev- I said 30% were abroad, 70% I'm are sorry, domestic. I'm sorry. I picked and the reason I else. said that is you're, what you're saying is actually, just, just to, to put in— you know, sorry to interject, but— um, what we typically see is 50%, this is the commentary you see, 50% of companies that report international revenue, or rather, of the companies that report international revenues, 50% of them are international sales. Um, the problem is we have a whole lot of very domestic industries. Sure. Think of hospitals, managed care, of, of regional banks, things that have no Okay, so having, having, so having established that, should a person, especially now that international has had a poor decade. Uh, you know, the, the people forget that during the aughts, the United States played second fiddle to emerging markets, and even the you know the MSCI, IFA, the developed markets. Is there a case for people chasing cheaper markets right now, or, or more aggressively diversifying into places that have not done as well? So I, I, I'm going to put on my global hat, which is really borrowing it from Robert Buckland, our global chief strategist, equity strategist. Um, so we do think EM has opportunities in emerging here, markets. Emerging markets. I was yeah. going to say that, but Robin beat me to it. Hmm. Well, he said EM before. I was following him. Um, so emerging markets have some opportunities. There's some attractive valuations in in, in those marketplaces. Um, our guys like Japan. We think the monetary policy will stay uh, more. Uh, more easy there, and somebody finally likes and, Japan, and you know, and they've got a weakening currency, which helps the earnings and their competitiveness, etc. Um, I, 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 we don't particularly love Europe. Um, not, not that it's bad, but um, the, the. I don't think the argument around valuation is a powerful one that mm-hmm. Europe's cheaper than the U.S. because it's not a like index. I'll give you an example. Uh, we're about 15 percent technology weighted in the S&P 500, about 16 percent financials in Europe. It's more like 4 percent technology and 22 percent financials. So it's not – you're not buying one versus the other as if it were the exact same thing. And I think you have to do valuation a little bit more different um, when you think about that. Number two – um, the return on equity is stronger in the U.S. than it has been in Europe for years. So we deserve a better valuation in the U.S. And, you know, and as a Canadian, it's hard for me to always compliment the U.S. And nobody's talking about it because nobody ever talked about it um, and probably won't talk about it for a while. But I was just in Europe, in Africa. And I have to say, you know, I know there's a lot of issues in Africa, but it is a really exciting time in terms of developed markets and what's going on there. I mean, the consumer base, there is an emerging middle class. And I think... The mechanisms aren't necessarily there to invest in Africa, but you're seeing new funds popping up, and it is very interesting. I want to know more, Tobias, and and the, and the knock on places like Africa or even Peru, or you get to the frontier markets, is that they all boil down to how well China is doing. And does that keep you up at night at all? Uh, the prospect of finally a hard landing for China. In many respects, we know that would be great. It would bring down commodity costs. Uh, here in the United States, or we saw when when Asia had a, a crisis in the late 1990s that was on balance uh, great for consumer costs. It brought commodity costs down. But is is a dislocation like that after such a long period of uninterrupted growth for China potentially cataclysmic for the whole world? 
So, so let's think about – I'm not a China expert, but I'll give you some context. Ch- China's government has said pretty clearly over its you know, five-year plans uh, over the last several years that it is moving towards a consumer and away from an investment-led economy. So they, they don't actually uh, want all this copper to build new you know, factories or roads and stuff like that. That's not where their idea is build and export. Their idea is create this domestic economy based on consumer and services and – People buying cars and homes. Exactly, and and you know, and they are going. Just as we say, America first. They're very China first in that mindset as well. Um, but it's more than that. It's services. They want to be. They want to have you know more in terms of just an example cruise lines. They're, all all the cruise ships, from what I understand, they're being ordered are going to China. Um, because they have a massive population is improving in their wealth, and they want to enjoy the world and see and see lovely places, and you know, and have the big floating boat to take them anywhere to have their adventure, which isn't that adventurous because you go back. And okay, how nice awesome is that midnight buffet? Uh, my problem is that I hit the breakfast buffet, the brunch buffet, the lunch buffet, the afternoon buffet, the dinner buffet, and the midnight buffet. No, but these stops along the but way. But Tobias, to on on the hard landing aspect of it, I mean, we've never we've never in real time have felt that before, at least since their ascension to the WTO. Um, well, we've had it in the industrial side of the economy. You just haven't had it in the consumer side of the economy. So you know, the 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 you mentioned commodities before. We had this notion of the super cycle. In the 2000s already, where we were building mines and you know expanding our oil demand everywhere, um, and there was fear we couldn't meet the demand, and then of course we've done more than meet the demand and caused the downside of it when when the global economy took a bath in 2009. Um, so I, I I think it's just a change in what the drivers are. We've always had changes, and I mean think of it this way: in the 80s it was conspicuous consumption, in the 90s we started getting into the PC boom, in the two, mid 2000s. It was the internet boom, or late 90s into 2000, mid-2000s is more mobility and cloud and things like that start up. So I, I'm, you know, I, I think there are different drivers along the way. Mm. Um, and I, that's why I, I always love Mark Twain's view of the world, that, uh, that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Can we have an infrastructure boom here in the U.S. without relying on emerging markets for commodities and for, for you know, pieces that were put together? So... It depends how you define infrastructure. I mean, I, I think people have different ways of thinking about it. And, and you know, uh, you know, if you get pipelines approved, is that infrastructure that the country needs? Some would say yes. Some would say no. They were thinking of roads, bridges, highways, that kind of stuff. And I would say, well, what about sewage treatment and what about airports? And the whole, there are a whole way, a wide range of ways to describe infrastructure. Um, the, the problem that we have now is some of the promises and some of the proposals around infrastructure, there just isn't money for it. That's the problem. Um, so you've got what to come up with What if you go to some, the capital markets? What so if you've you... got to come up with some creative solutions. I have, I have friends of mine in Europe who tell me that the U.S. is positively communist in the sense that we still have government-run airports. Okay, I travel around the world for work. I really don't get two, three-hour delays when I'm running around Europe or Asia. It doesn't happen. And part of this is privatized airports that don't allow airlines to do that. And if they do, they get charged hundreds of thousands of dollars for staying in a gate or keeping people on planes on the ground. Um, And it changes the entire nature of that efficiency. Um, So we have a lot of stuff we can privatize. We have a lot of stuff that we can look to capital markets to finance. Um, But you have to get a buy-in from everybody. Uh, If all of a sudden you're going to toll roads – you know, a lot of people don't want to pay those tolls and feel that my ta- their taxes went to it. And unfortunately, a chunk of their taxes today are going to pay pensions of people who retired, mm-hmm. not to 
You know, and these are promises made 30, 40 years ago to those retirees. I, I don't blame the retirees. I blame the governments that were in place that said, hey, I can sign those contracts because guess what? When it all blows up, I'm not here anymore. But that's the education system. That's, you know, hospitals. That's there's your when you talk about unions and you talk about contracts. I'm not even talking about unions. It's about governments that made deals with 30 year lives on them and realizing they didn't have to deal with it. And some of those people who signed those contracts as leaders of their cities, states, et cetera, are no longer alive. You can't even go to them and complain. You know, so it's about being responsible with your actions. And you're my generation are paying the price for some of those, in my opinion, kind of silly decisions. Lauren Young, I'd like to get the sentiment from uh, readers of yours, from, from people actually that many fund managers you meet with out there. How do you describe this environment where after this huge paroxysm of volatility and fear in 2008, 2009, even into 2011 with Europe's issues, we've had such a muted period for volatility. In fact, I think arguably volatility has never been this low um, over you know, if you cl- you clock the numbers today in late January 2017, um, what do they compare this period to? It's interesting you say that, Robin, because the number one thing they said they were worried about for, for 2017 was volatility. When we talk to them, we do like a big investment outlook summit at, at the end of the year and we bring in all these top, top people and volatility, volatility, volatility was the thing that came up over and over and over again. So we, it's interesting, you know, you always... Maybe at least people who worry about things professionally and worry about money are always worried about the thing that isn't happening, which is, you know, good. And they have been worried about volatility. Uh, Tobias, does, does it bother you? So, yeah, but for different reasons, okay? Well, um, everything bothers you for different no, reasons. No, not everything bothers me. Um, the When my Montreal Canadiens lose, that bothers me. Um, our rationale for why volatility will pick up is more about the shape of the yield curve and it's the two-year lead indicator. So I'm not making an argument about what Trump might do tomorrow or um, what's going to happen in European elections or some geopolitical event that I can't predict anyway. Um, because you could say that all the time that there's this this thing out in the, in the shadows that can do that. Um, ours is much more statistically derived. The, the problem that I have with people who like to talk about it because eventually something will happen and it will be big. And I see, I see, I warned you about it. And I said, yeah, you, you, you shot a dart in the, you know, and it, it hit the target as opposed to you had any great insight. And that, that's the stuff that bothers me when people talk about volatility, volatility. And by the way, everybody wants volatility because they believe that's going to be the difference between active and passive management, that they're going to be able to, as active managers, find the opportunities better and, and earn their, their fees and their returns. And the problem with that is I can show you for the past 15 years or so that the differential on the average performance of the top 25% of the S&P 500 and the bottom 25% of the S&P 500's performance has been about 50 percentage points pretty much every single year. So there's been plenty of alpha generation opportunity. There's been plenty of opportunity. I don't understand pickers. a word of what you just said. My gosh. I think he's saying is stock picking is dead. No, the idea that stock picking is dead and that you need volatility to generate a new opportunity for stock picking that's just not true. If I can, I can prove it over the past 15 years. If people have done a good job stock picking or not, totally different story. Have they? No. Right. So there reason, there's structural reasons for that. There's, there, it's dead. No, no. There's structural reasons for it. Not, there isn't, it's not something inherent in the market, which is the way most people want to present it with that volatility They're saying argument. they need volatility to be good stock pickers because it creates opportunities. Right. And, and, I can show and you're you, saying it's and I'm sure I, Again, if you look at the difference in the performance, the average performance of the top 20, 100, 
125, it was 500, yeah, so it's a quarter, is the top 125 names and the worst 125 names in the S&P 500, the difference in average performance was 50 percentage points or even greater. Hmm. And my point being that it's not if you own three stocks, you would have had a great year. And if you didn't own those three stocks, you didn't. If you would have owned 125 and not owned the other 125, you would have had a hell of a year. And that was true every year. Tobias, good sir. Um, yes. I'm, I'm not veering you into an openly political direction, but certainly everybody <laughs> is talking about the Trump White House right now. Not just the the, the, the fiscal stimulus that's coming up, but the potential uh, for dislocations in terms of trade. Like what happens if they really open up the negotiating window with the Mexicans again and NAFTA? What happens if there's a trade war with China? Um, what what are what are the, the, the things actually in, in political economy and, and trade that are chiefly on your radar right now? Yeah, I, I don't know the... You know the inside scoop on the on the uh, White House and the staffing, and a lot of the staff hasn't even been filled in yet. Um, but, but one of the things I'm relatively certain of is that the focus of the Republicans and the focus of the president is growth, um, and we need to generate growth. And if bad trade outcomes don't generate growth, in other words, if you create trade wars and global trade slows and economic conditions weaken, that's not a, you know something that I think anybody really wants. Now, having said that, you know, there, there's a, uh, how should I put it? There's a cadre of people that Mr. Trump clearly speaks to, okay? A number of them are in his cabinet, all very wealthy individuals who built, uh, in many cases, pretty significant businesses. Mm-hmm. You have big supporters of the uh, of the Republican Party, I think Koch Industries and the Koch brothers have come out pretty blatantly against trade publicly, against any kind of trade war kind of approach publicly, and they're going to put pressure on it. And I think he's going to listen to some of these very smart business people telling him, hey, you know, this isn't going to trade wars is not the way to do it. You want to use moral suasion. And in the case of Mexico and Canada, the U.S. is in a pretty good position. When I grew up in Canada, um, the joke was, um, as a kid, we used to hear if the U.S. catches a cold, we, we catch pneumonia. Because Canada is a tenth of the size of, of the United States and needs that trade relationship. Mexico has a similar issue. So the power does sit in America to kind of force its way. Now, again, this may not be, how should I put it, um, diplomatic by any stretch. But America is in a position of power to force some concessions. And I'm not sure what the other side can really do. I, you know, again, I, I But are we I giving that. away a lot? I mean, right now, is trade really hurting economic growth? Or the, the is NAFTA bad I, for the economy? I, I'm not in a position to argue yes or no. I, I suspect no, but I'm not in a great yeah, position to argue Yeah, I don't think it, it is. I, I, Look, I, I can get, Lauren, I can get you to pick vegetables in California. Um, the problem is the price I wish that I have to pay you to do that is substantially greater than the migrant workers who come up and do it. Um, so I'm not sure we're losing jobs to those migrant workers in the United States. And what we need desperately in this country is better skilled workers, not unskilled workers. We have massive shortages in a whole bunch of industries of those skilled workers. And, and there are a whole lot of reasons for it that, that are uh, too numerous to, to go through from policy to, you know, to teachers to – I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. Um, you know, we're pushing kids through school who haven't mastered the skills in different grades because to a certain degree, the, in some cases, the teachers are afraid to hold them back. 
uh, either because of the student themselves or the parents of the student. Uh, but but that's not the issue. I, I used to cover industrial companies. You guys know that from my background. He has some um, really good stories about being in really strange places and <laughs> snowstorms. And, you know, I, it was very interesting to hear big industrial companies tell us that they take high school graduates from their very, in these towns where they have factories and have to like, pretty much re-educate them because they're going to use computer numerically controlled machine tools and they couldn't do basic math. So we have we have some issues in the way we develop our population. Um, and we do need immigration. I, I think it's silly to assume that, you know, every, every one of us is an immigrant from someplace. Um, you know, I just wonder if they built the wall on the wrong side because, you know, if they want to build the wall on the wrong side because I came in from Canada and obviously your standards are lower to let me in. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, we just, and we look exactly like you. We speak exactly like you. We just drop A from the end of our sentences. <laughs> and you love Degrassi Junior High and Tim Hortons Donuts. <laughs> Tim Hortons Coffee is awesome. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us from NPR New York City are Tobias Lefkovich, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Citigroup, and Reuters Money Editor Lauren Young. Lauren, talk to me about what the buzz was at, at Davos in terms of uh, kind of getting its, its mitts around this administration this new economic reality, um, the, the, the reverberations, the predictions for 2017. Davos is how we say it in Switzerland. Um, I had fun walking around all week saying Davos. Uh, the main themes, they have these big working themes, the future of work, automation, artificial intelligence. So uh, along the lines exactly of what you're Wait, saying. Wait, are you, are you and, a proper thought leader now? Have you been christened as such? I was always a thought leader, Robin. Okay. You know that. Uh, in my so. own mind. I'm a legend in my own mind. Are you mind. a thinkfluencer? I think, no. I hope not. Has Dan Roth um, at LinkedIn reached out to, to make you a LinkedIn influencer yet? <laughs> um, no. Answer the question, please. Uh, wait, no, wh- who booked no. this? Who, wait, hold on, hold on. Who booked her on this show? Uh, I told uh, you uh, LinkedIn uh, influencers. Uh, at, at, at worst, Forbes 30 under 30. Actually, go ahead, go ahead. So there was a lot of talk, um, you know, the big the big speeches in, da- in Davos or Davos this year were Theresa May spoke, um, the Chinese president spoke. And who is, Joe Biden to- who is Theresa May? What, what is that? Um, from the UK. She's the prime minister. She um, so those were the ones that everybody was paying attention to. Those are the big, big deal. Now, Justin Trudeau from Canada actually said that there was too much going on at home and he pulled out of coming. So those were the big ones. Yeah, right? he had a little scandal. He had to a little, deal with it. There home. always is a scandal. Um, but the, I think the buzz was everybody was kind of like. Oh my goodness! What is happening in the U.S. and how is it going to Im- impact us? That was really the bottom, bottom. And was you know, Margaret Thatcher busy that she had to send? Was it Teresa who? <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Robin's being funny, ladies and gentlemen. I think I'm funny. I'm I'm Sephardic. I'm not funny. very funny. Go this ahead. Is funny. Um, so. In ter- you know, it's interesting because I described it because it was my first experience and it was it was it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But it's like a big fraternity party with skis. And it's not what I learned very quickly, which is interesting. And, it, and I met this guy who runs the largest insurance company in Africa. We were walking down. It's all very icy and slippery there. And he said to me, so we were walking slowly. 
the whole reason why he goes and why our CEO of Thomson Reuters goes and a lot of people is it's great networking because you can see 20 CEOs over the course of two days and have all your meetings and not have to travel all around the world to meet these people. So what happens in the sessions themselves is, you know, a lot of thinking. There's a lot of NGO people, a lot of kumbaya. We're going to make the world a better place. I, I You know, whether or not it's, it's all well-intentioned. Tobias is pretending to fall asleep right now. Well, um, no, I, I, the reason I, the reason I'm doing that is more a function of, you know, I, I, from some of the stories I read, I've never been invited to Davos, so you know, feel feel superior to me. I was working. Um, it's not like I was invited. <laughs> but but uh, the 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 notion of I, I read about this, the concern about populism and you know leading to a Trump or to potentially a Marine Le Pen in France or Gert Wilders in, in the Netherlands and stuff like that. That there was this kind of soul searching on the elites relative to the populace. and it's a bu- it's the same bubble and, and it's of, the same bubble right. of elites going on. So. I, I'm, I'm fascinated when the elites are looking at themselves and navel-gazing what actually transpires other than I got to hang out with a number of CEOs who are just like me. But the CEOs themselves are making business decisions. And so, you you know, that's separate from the kumbaya and all the la-di-da nature of we're going to make the world a better place. Here are business leaders who are coming together to try and figure out, you know, deals and mergers and stuff happens behind closed doors that we don't know about. I, and and it, it is interesting to, to, you know, to rub elbows with people and meet people. The cool thing, too, is everybody wears these little lapel pins from, like, whatever their affiliation is. So you'll see, like, all the South Africans have South African pins and the Canadians are wearing little maple leaves. It's just really funny. I, I've been meaning to do an Instagram, like, of all the—I took pictures of pins all week. It was fascinating. Do they trade the pins, like, in the Olympics? No, it's not like that, and okay. it's not like the World Cup, but it was very cool. <laughs> What uh, Tobias? What is? What do you think is being most short shrifted, uh, both from a market's perspective and a geopolitical perspective right now? You had mentioned Venezuela. This, this show is being short shrifted. I yeah. know it is. I've I've always don't, don't. been short shrifted. Look, I am. Yeah, I am too. I have the same problem. I am, I am growth <laughs> at a distressed price. I've always been growth at a distressed price. No, I mean, you're 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 like you're like me. We're vertically challenged. I'm like a. Um, I'm, well, no, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm like a tobacco. I'm like a tobacco stock and everything, but you know, uh, I, I do my best. Um, I show unloved. up, and I does that, does that mean you're you got a lot of cash flow and slightly dangerous? A lot of liability, <laughs> liability risk. I'm also carcinogenic, but that's neither here nor there. Talk to me about the biggest kind of, the, you know, on, on the risk radar. What is being short shrifted? Some people often talk about the South China Sea, like no one here in the United States would talk about that. Venezuela has been uh, pretty much borderline failed state now for two, three years. No one knows how that's going to resolve. Is there going to be an outright default? Um, what do you see happening? So I, I, I don't spend time thinking about uh, Venezuela, to be fair. Uh, we've had difficult and, and challenging economies in South America before, like Brazil, like Argentina. So, you know, unfortunately, those aren't the needle movers. Um, and I'm not. That's not to say that people aren't suffering dearly. And, How is and, Venezuela and not a needle mover, though? If it defaults, I mean, there there's a systemic Again, risk. I mean, to, the Brazilian we, and Argentinian mm, banks and the various we've had institutions. Russian bond defaults that didn't destroy the world. We've had Argentina essentially default. We've several had currency, times. lots of currency crises. You know, so I, 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 and that's the only reason I say that is we we've had stressed states that it, if it accounted for 10 percent of global GDP and owned 30 and 30 percent of the bonds, yeah, then we'd be really really worried. But it. It, it doesn't. It, and I don't mean – again, I don't want to give uh, – I'm not trying to blast the, the pain that many – many uh, and forget about the pain that many people in Venezuela are suffering. There, there's, there's well, then let me, let me stress that, that then. Was Brazil or, big enough to kind of throttle the rest of the world? It didn't. It didn't. That's the thing. But was it a depression Brazil in Brazil? It was a nasty recession. 
but it was nothing akin to maybe what they experienced um, several times in the 1980s or the late or the late 90s. Again, I, I think if you're going to tell me there's a horrible problem in Europe and a horrible problem in the U.S. or a horrible problem hard landing in China, those are going to have greater ripple effects than any country in South America. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh. My mother's Colombian, so I have great, I have great affinity. Which has been a pretty amazing people. success story. We've we've spoken about that before. Not when she was living there. <laughs> it was a pretty scary. <laughs> but if you look at the past 15 years, I mean, wow. No, absolutely, it's yeah. an incredible success story. Olivia did a great job, uh, but the the. You know, the world – the thing that people are terrified of is, um, again, what policies could the new administration bring here that would be viewed as pretty negative from a global perspective on trade, immigration, et cetera. So what would trip uh, your Europe, wire? What would get you alarmed? What would suddenly listen? Trade wars. Clearly, protectionism and trade wars are, are – have never ended Just ridiculous well. tariffs that would make it impossible for a Japanese car to come to the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, a lot of cars are built. When I, when I, used, to, when I used to cover industrial companies back in the 80s and early 90s, um, probably 90% was of the stuff was being imported from from Asia. Today, it's they're building them here because they recognize everybody's gone global sourcing. They have to worry about where their currency. So yeah, Tobias, talk and, talk to me about yeah. the industrial heartland here. There's a lot of talk today um, in the press about this idea, however notional it is, that you could build an iPhone in the United States. You could assemble it and charge maybe two hundred dollars. How much more, more for expensive it. is it going right. to be? Though? But talk, un- be unpack that for me. This idea that maybe when you have a more protectionist um, trade saber rattling president that it might make sense for a Foxconn, the, the contract manufacturer, to build at least a portion of them here. So, yeah, you could do certain things in the U.S. It would be fairly automated as well. You'd have you'd have jobs. And we look, we, we produce semiconductors in this country uh, pretty, pretty well, okay? And we export them, believe it or not. Um, but it's a big fab with a really, really well air-conditioned, you know, system as a, as a clean room. Uh, and it's a lot of machines cutting silicon to turn it into a chip. There are not that many human beings in that facility. Um, so those kind of things we can do very successfully where there's not massive labor. We contact. build awesome cars here. We do the Subaru do. factory in Indiana. I mean, BMW is here. Honda, no, Toyota. Not, again, a, we're, we're very good manufacturing things. We are, we are not that good at manufacturing uh, apparel because it just doesn't have the same kind of the labor. value. It's the labor. Right? The labor content is just too big. Um, any, so I think McKinsey did a study on this uh, a few years ago that anything that has less than 20% labor content, we are extremely competitive. Hmm. Um, what, so there besides are some, retail, what's the highest labor content in terms of a good that's uh, produced? Furniture is pretty labor content heavy. Um, certain electronics. But it, you talked about – you said unpack it for me. Packing, just having a bunch of people putting things in boxes. That's human beings in many cases. Um, and it's cheaper in a lot of countries than to automate it here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- this is the other portion is that the lower the skill, the easier it is to automate, right? Um, and they don't make mistakes. And they don't take bathroom breaks and things like that. And they never get sick. And they show up to work every day when you turn them on. So the, the, this, the idea of automation ultimately taking all the jobs away I think is overstated. The time frames involved are not overnight. Uh, but let's do one thing. If, if in theory, okay, and again, it's very much in theory, let's assume, let's go delusional for a moment, that we can do everything for the same labor costs as they can do it in China and in Thailand and Malaysia, et cetera. Let's, let's, let's pretend for a moment, load up the La La Land. I know it won a lot of nominations for Oscars, but let's go to La La Land for a second and believe that. Um, it would take us years to build up the factories and the work and the infrastructure to actually replace the content we're bringing in. 
Mm. We couldn't do this overnight. It just we don't have the logistics. Uh, We could create it, but it might take five, ten years to do it. So um, it'll have to. Anything we do will have to be a phase in process. Um, And I think people are they're rational people around who think this stuff through. Um, Governments can make mistakes. Any government can. Uh, but there are a lot of people in responsible positions in government who will actually tell you, yeah, you can't do this or you can't do that. Well, And, in- I, and again, I, 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 irrespective – and again, this is why I tell people to, pull, to park their political partisanship um, – that there are rational people sit around a room and they come together and yes, they may have an agenda but they also realize how much they can put through that, that is feasible and how much is – kind of dreamy phase, but not plausible. In the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd like to put it out there open-endedly. Lauren, tell me what I should be paying more attention to. Tell me what's front and center for you, what you're working on. So the bubble that um, we've been living in, the people who are outside the bubble, I want their sentiment. I want to see if things really do shift, if they feel that, because the, the reason why they've been so, they feel like they've been left behind. And I want to I want to know them. I want to I, I feel like I want to be outside of my bubble and I want to leave it and I want to go live somewhere else and experience it. It's not going to happen because I have a family and it's not possible. But I wanted I want to know it better. Is that and because of from, is, the, is that the is that were you chastened by the election? I mean, they're in Manhattan and in Brooklyn and seeing this happen and the guy from the Upper East Side suddenly being elected president on a populist surge. Yeah, and I mean, I the joke is I live on a small island off the coast of the United States. I mean, it's really not represent, and the coasts in general are just not representative of what's in the middle. And and I love different viewpoints. It makes life so much more interesting. But the challenge is right now, Robin, is just people coming together and finding middle ground. And how do you do that? I mean, honestly, I think if you just made mothers, like I always say, my the PTA at my son's old school, we could figure it all out. These these ladies get stuff done. You know, there's no. No time. They're working moms. They're busy. Like, let us take care of it and we'll figure it out. Because I think a bunch of macho guys and their egos, you know, is that's that that is just like the death sentence for our country. Hey, Robin, we just got we got dissed. Um, let's put this I, again because I covered industrial companies. I spent a lot of time outside of Manhattan. I remember a number of years ago taking my family to visit some friends in Memphis, and we drove to Nashville. And it happened to be the week of the country music festival, and we bought our basket of food and bought tickets and sat down and made my children listen to country music for 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 two hours or so. And they'd never seen people like Alabama or Big and Rich and um, Cowboy Troy and a few other uh, Gretchen. Uh, was her last name Wilson, and um, and it was just a lot of fun. And Shania Twain, my Canadian buddy, was there too. So, um, you know, and when we left, my kids said, "Dad, why'd you make us suffer through that?" And I said, "Because, like, guys, I wanted you to see America." And they said, um, "And I said, Dad, we live in America." And I said, "No, you don't. You live in New York." And that sentiment that you just suggested is very different. I, I think people who live in Manhattan, people who live in L.A., people who live in Chicago have no clue. What goes on? I had fr- I have a couple of hedge fund friends who said they went to a 20th anniversary um, reunion of their summer camp. They landed in Chicago. This was before the elections, uh, so late summer. Um, they drove from Chicago two hours into Nowhereland, Wisconsin, to where that campsite was, and you know met up with a few hundred people. They said that entire drive, the two-hour drive from O'Hare to this place in Wisconsin, was Trump signs. They only saw Trump signs. They didn't see a single Hillary sign anywhere, mm-hmm. and it was a shock to them being from Manhattan. And yet 
I, I think there is this kind of enclave, and you said this little island. Um, we just don't realize that there are millions and millions of Americans who live outside of cities who have a very different perspective on life. They're not bad people. They're not all racist. They're not all, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a perception in the cities that this is what they are. They're racist and misogynist and things like that. And they're not. They, they just and we're have a elitist and liberal. So. Right. They have a different perspective on the world. They're really By happy. By the way, Tobias to, is not liberal. <laughs> they, they, no, I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty centrist. Um, but they're, but they're, what do you call it? They're, they're, everybody says they're centrist, right? Um, but they think, you know, coaching their kids soccer is great and, you know, and, and f- July 4th is a great celebration for them. They're, they're so excited to be Americans. Um, and, and they think there's nothing wrong with going hunting at night, you know, on, uh, during hunting season or going fishing. They think that's cool, not going to the opera. That's not cool to them. And by the way, I'm not a big opera fan, so I'll put that out there. I mean, in closing, I should ask you, what do you think this president's relationship is to the stock market? He's always been kind of openly skeptical. He says, I make money with real estate. I make money with deals. But I believe Tim O'Brien at Bloomberg pointed out that his his performance compared to the S&P 500, if you just took his inheritance and the performance of Trump properties, it would have lagged the stock market. This is not an equity culture CEO. In fact, his companies have gone under. So do we? Do, does the stock market, does the cult of equity have an advocate in the Trump administration? I doubt it. Um, I, I, but I don't think it matters. I don't think the cult of equity had an advocate in the stock market with President Obama either. Um, I think it's more about can you get growth? Can you generate earnings? That's what markets care about ultimately. And do it in a – see, the thing, Robin, I once had a taxi driver and I love taxi drivers and, you know, get into this conversation about who you're going to vote for. And my the driver said, you know, why would I vote for somebody who's gone bankrupt as many times as, as Donald Trump? He said, how could that person be good to run our country? And I think there is fiscal responsibility and that it, – it worries me because I just – there's not a great history of it. You can – it's a lot of lip service right now, but you need, there is prudence that has to be – you know, there's – deficits have to be managed for a reason. You know, there's – it all ties together. There's It's a big no, so this cyclical is, so, money ball. So, you, so you're just – you're cheering on the Freedom Caucus, you know, the guys who believe in, in the Republican Party that we have to be deficit hawks. Um, which is not expansionary monetary policy. It's cutting back entitlements, doing things like that, um, which is not where the country's at mentally. So I, 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 I agree we have to be fiscally responsible. Um, I just think the there are times when you have to be – let's put it this way. You have to be fiscally responsible for the long term, not the short term. And we haven't really done that because of this instant gratification society. We want results yesterday. And you have to manage expectations now. Is is President Trump going to be the best um, messenger to the American people of we're going to do some things painfully now to have some better returns in the future? That's up to people to decide. I I have my doubts. but President Obama inherited a crappy economy. Donald Trump inherits a really strong one, it sounds like. That's strong, but better. Better. I mean, it's got momentum. It's It's got legs. Finally, 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 Tobias. Uh, backing out the Toronto Argonauts, of course, who wins the Super Bowl this year? So if you're a stock market guy, you really don't want the Patriots because of the kind of old Super Bowl indicator on the AFC, NFC. If you're a lover of humanity kind of and all things decent and humble, you don't want the Patriots to win, Don. I, mean, I, have, to admit, I have to admit, market. I like both. Uh, now, I'm going to be very, very diplomatic here and say I like both Roger Kraft and Mr. Blank. So I'm, uh, the owners of the teams, I'm, I'm kind of uh, rooting for both of them. Obviously, as uh, Henry Kissinger said, 
during the Iran-Iraq war um, that he said pity both can't lose. And I'm going to say pity both can't win in this case because they're both – I think they're both great teams. And I think that it will be – hopefully it will be a lot more fun to watch that game than some of the – Oh, I guess, I guess they're both – I guess that must be in the boilerplate somewhere. They must be Citigroup clients. I didn't look at that. So. No, 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 no. I, I have no idea if they Lauren are Lauren Young, you take us out. Who wins? Oh, you know what? The Philadelphia 76ers are coming back, Rob, and that's all you need to know. <laughs> Wait a minute. If you live in New York, if you live in New York, you're rooting desperately against the Patriots. <laughs> Just think of it that way. <laughs> and I'm a Philly girl, so you root against them too. But it's hard. I think I love Giselle. What can I say, Tom? You see, that's I'm I'm a Brady hater. He I gets paid a lot of money to throw a football around, and he's married to Giselle. He's got, he shouldn't His be life is lucky. too good. His life is too good. <laughs> exactly. Thank exactly. I'm, I'm, de- I'm, desperately, <laughs> uh, I'm desperately jealous of the Thank you I so much. I think my wife is beautiful, too. Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters. Tobias Lefkovich, chief U.S. equity strategist at Citigroup. It has been a pleasure and an honor. We love you, Robin. Thanks. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Manoli Weatherill at NPR New York City. Find us on NPR One, iTunes at FoldyRadio.com, Stitcher, Acast, SoundCloud. On Facebook, we are Facebook.com slash FoldyRadio. Hey, we are cyclically adjusted, normalized on a 40-year rolling average, euphorically panicking, oversold, and yet underbought. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>